0: Good morning everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White and I'm Director of the Institute and I am Chair of the Commission on the Centre of Government which we are launching here today. So thank you very much uh, to everyone who's joining us here in the room uh, and everyone who is joining online. I'm delighted to be joined here on stage by Sir Anthony Selden who is Deputy Chair of the Commission and I'm really pleased that we're joined in the audience today by many of our excellent commissioners Um, who will be undertaking this very exciting journey with us. I know many of our other commissioners are joining us online, and I also want to say uh, that we have uh, some other commissioners in the pipeline uh, who we will be announcing in coming days, who will enhance the diversity of the commission in various ways, so look out for them. A couple of logistical points before we start. We'll be tweeting this event from IFG Events, uh, using the hashtag RFG Center, so do tweet along if you feel like it and if you are either here in the room or at home please do start sending in your questions via slido um, you can also use slido to send your thoughts on the commission and who we should be talking to and what questions we should be asking we're very keen to hear everyone's thoughts on that just to let you know um, a little bit about how we're going to run the event today um, i'm going to kick off by telling you a little bit about the commission Anthony's then going to say a little bit about why we thought it was so important to run this commission now. Uh, I'm then going to turn to our panellists who I'm extremely pleased are joining us. uh, Lord Butler, Peter Hill and Baroness Finn. Um, Ask them some questions and then we'll open up uh, to let you all ask your questions from the floor and from uh, online. To kick off the commission, why uh, why are we doing this commission? Well, one reason, uh, when Anthony came to us with the idea of a commission on the centre of government, one reason we were so keen is that the IFG has always had a long-standing interest in the centre of government, for obvious reasons, in how Number 10 operates, uh, in how the Cabinet cabinet Office works with Number 10, and both of those uh, relationships with the Treasury. Um, We've published reports on how the centre is organised, most notably Centre Forward, which was authored by Jill Rutter. Um, We've looked at the confusion of accountabilities we feel there is at the centre of government sometimes between politicians and civil servants, culminating in a report by my colleague Alex Thomas, uh, who's here in the front uh, last summer, who (coughs) wrote about uh, an idea we have for whether we could put the civil service on a better statutory footing in order to clarify those accountabilities. And we've talked over the course of the IFG's existence to numerous people, uh, like those on stage today, who've worked at the centre, politicians, special advisers, and civil servants. So the opportunity to focus on this question of why the centre does and doesn't work was really attractive to us. The opportunity to do it with a wise and experienced set of commissioners who would expand our horizons, provoke us, make us ask different questions to the the, ones the IFG might naturally ask itself, Uh, really was irresistible Um, and we're really uh, keen and pleased that we've managed to recruit a set of commissioners who aren't just people who've worked at the centre all their lives but who have interacted with the centre, who have thought uh, interestingly about other sectors, other um, uh, indeed internationally, how other centres of government work and can bring those ideas and that real questioning perspective to everything that we do. And the prospect of running this commission over a year, as we're going to do at a time when we've got a new government, which is seeking to make its mark, as it may have just done with the Windsor framework, um, and an opposition contemplating what it might be like to be in government, uh, was, uh, again, very attractive to us, because we feel there's a real opportunity for this commission to have impact. And by impact, we don't just mean in the short term over the next five years but really over the next 30 years of thinking what could the centre of government be and how could it better serve the UK. We're going to be taking evidence from people who worked at the centre but also people from a whole range of other spheres including those who have uh, interacted with the centre. Um, I I hasten to add that It's not possible for our excellent group of commissioners to represent every possible viewpoint themselves, so that's why we're so keen uh, to ensure that we get everyone's ideas on who we should be talking to. Um, We'll be looking at evidence of when the centre has worked best um, over uh, the last 100 years or so. We'll be looking at evidence internationally, and we'll be looking uh, at evidence uh, and experience from other sectors, uh, including, of course, local government and devolved government in the UK, one of our closest comparators. So um, that's why we really think this is a great opportunity. We're really pleased at the IFG to be launching this commission. Um, And I'm gonna hand over to Anthony to say a few words now about why he thinks it's so important for us to be doing it right now.
1: Thank you very much, Hannah, and a very warm welcome to everybody here in this room and next door and welcome to everybody online. Thank you very much for joining us and giving us that support. Uh, at our very outset, it, it, means, uh, it means a lot to us. In my five minutes, I'm gonna just say a word about why, why now, how, and I'm gonna finish with one provocation. Can I just mention by name the commissioners who are here? Uh, there are many watching online, but those who are here, just so that you have the opportunity over coffee, if you can stay on to say hello to them. Uh, commissioners present are Lord Darsey, Richard Lambert, Lawrence Friedman, Karen von Hippel, Mark Thompson, Ben Warner, Matthew Juniper, and Man- Anne McElvoy. So they are here, those eight.
0: And Ian Mulhern over there. Um,
1: <laughs> and, uh, and thank you so much. Um, and uh, they're there. And, and that idea of talking to us, helping us, if we're going to make a success of this, we're going to do it together. There's vast wisdom. Uh, in these two rooms there's vast wisdom online Um, so why? Uh, Well it's nearly 40 years um, since Robin Butler was a very young uh, man in the treasury at the time since Peter Hennessy and I set up um, our institute to try and and get more interchange between those in government and those studying it and uh, over those 40 years uh, the quality of Uh, leadership, premiership, uh, decision-making has not uh, significantly improved at all, and we've had a number of troubled premierships in a row, uh, and the the time is ripe, and as Hannah said, um, uh, all that I did was just the catalyst for for an idea that was bubbling up the work that Jill Rutter and many others have been doing here at the Institute for Government. It was simply the right time. That's why, and why now? Uh, Well, we could spend 10 years doing this, frankly, uh, but we are going to do it in one year. Uh, Some commissions take uh, and inquiries take a long time, too long. Um, We have to do this because there's going to be a general election likely next autumn. Uh, We're going to be having possibly a new government or uh, the Rishi Sunak government back. This is the moment. Government cannot think uh, itself into these types of solutions new administrations come in new prime ministers it's so incredibly exciting prime minister I've got the president of the United States on the phone president uh, prime minister I've, I, I've got uh, uh, I've got Ed Sheeran uh, wanting to talk to you I've got Rupert Murdoch uh, wanting to talk to you I've got the palace oh my goodness it's so exciting there isn't that time to actually sink uh, and every prime minister who I've ever written about has always said the one thing that they most miss, like their teams, was that sinking time. So we're going to be doing this reporting early 2024 with a set of recommendations, um, very uh, sensible and likely and some more blue skies recommendations uh, that all commissioners will not agree on, but which will, uh, we believe, uh, be sensible and enriched by your contributions. How Pan has done that? Governments, you know, are not, they don't really, can we whisper this softly, they don't really know how the centre works in Japan or Korea uh, or Brasilia. Uh, they really don't. Uh, they really haven't a clue how the centre works and government is different. Every history, every culture, every country is different. But there's some fundamentals. Uh, not the least how you use AI and digital uh, to 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 connect government uh, and to stop it being so siloed. Uh, learning from the private sector. Why is there so little learning from the private sector? Running highly complex. Competitive organisations, which if they're not performing properly, will go under, why are we not learning from the very best, highly complex private sector organisations in this country and abroad? And also, you know, having tried for years to get talks into number 10 so that the incumbents learn from the past. Uh, Peter Hill was incredibly supportive uh, and helpful when his principal private secretary uh, under Theresa May for this, getting people in so that people can enjoy and, and meet people like Robin Butler who've been there before, who can have an institutional memory and wisdom. There isn't time for that. And we need to respect, so when does it work best? What can we learn from the private sector? What can we learn from abroad? Finally, a provocation. Look, this is very provocative, but, but um, prime ministers come in and one thing they know is that the previous regime was, <laughs> was rubbish particularly if it's in their own party. Uh, they don't know anything at all. We've got to get rid of them. They're stained uh, people. And what they end up doing is reverting to type. So uh, uh, Tony Blair uh, lost so much time because he came into number 10 and was leader of the opposition for his first substantially four years when he had the most political capital. Gordon Brown came in he was the Treasury uh, Prime Minister. Theresa May came in uh, early on and was the Home Office Prime Minister. Uh, Boris Johnson in his early years before Simone sorted him out uh, was the City Hall uh, Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak uh, has uh, the risk of being the Treasury Prime Minister. Why? Because there's not time unlike that American system eight weeks to think think it through, suddenly they're there. We are there to be their thinking minds to help them. We're in this. We are there, whichever government, we don't care who uh, wins the general election, we are there to help and we'll help better with all of you helping us. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Anthony. So I'd like to turn now to our excellent panel, who've been waiting very patiently uh, for us, um, and introduce them quickly, and then I'll I'll ask some questions. So Lord Butler, of course, uh, following a long career in the civil service, uh, was private secretary uh, to Edward Heath and Harold, Harold Wilson, principal private secretary to Margaret Thatcher, and then of course cabinet secretary under Thatcher, Major, and Blair. Uh, Simone Finn, Baroness Finn, worked as a Special Advisor at the Centre of Government in the Cabinet Office and as uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to Boris Johnson. And Peter Hill, until very recently, uh, was a civil servant and was uh, Principal Private Secretary to Theresa May and most recently CEO of COP26. So really an excellent set of people I think to start us off on this journey with their reflections today. Lord Butler, I'd like to start with you, if that's okay, um, because you really bring this tremendous uh, experience over time <laughs> of having worked for five different- uh, 50 years. <laughs> and five different prime ministers. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's really interesting for us. Could, can you um, tell us a little bit about how you think the personality and the approach of different prime ministers changes the effectiveness of the centre of government?
2: Uh, Well, um, yes, I mean, personalities uh, matter and uh, all the Prime Ministers I served with were different. They had different talents, different characteristics, and when I give talks about the Prime Ministers, I say that none of them were duds. You know, the media would have you think that they're all fools and knaves, and certainly that wasn't true of any of the Prime Ministers that I served. As you say, I mean, I was there from 1972, on and off, until 1997. And actually, number 10 didn't really change much during that time. It was a slim line, very much more slim line than I gather it is today. Very functional. And perhaps, I mean, I could just start it off by describing what number 10 consisted of uh, in the time that I was there, and as I say, it, it really didn't change uh, very much. Um, there were the private secretaries in those two rooms next to the cabinet room, facing out onto horse guards, uh, civil servants, um, principal private secretary who was a grade three civil servant, but was really the boss of the place. I mean, he, the, 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 um, and it always was it, he in my time, um, perhaps still always has been, Um, was the uh, person who was really the chief honcho of uh, number 10. And then in those two rooms, there were four other private secretaries, one dealing with foreign affairs, one dealing with treasury and economic, one uh, dealing with uh, MPs' correspondence and parliamentary questions, and one dealing with home affairs and uh, diary. And then there was a a, a, um, duty clerk in the corner, who had c- connections to the team of duty clerks downstairs and produced all the papers we wanted. And then uh, also down on that lower floor, there were the garden rooms and uh, the girls who did uh, all the typing. And then uh, there was the other side of the cabinet room was the political secretary, uh, Douglas Hurd, when I was first there, Marcia um, Falkender and then a sort of um, place where the parliamentary private secretary could come in and uh, perch. And then, uh, particularly in the later years, the policy unit, um, Bernard Donoghue, Sarah Hogg, uh, which was a team of really only seven, (laughs) not all um, political appointments, um, some civil servants among them, and their uh, job was to, as it were, inject... Thoughts to the Prime Minister, uh, often from a political perspective. And then there was the appointment secretary, there was the honours section, and of course the press office, that bow window uh, at the front, very much smaller, I gather, uh, than it is today. And uh, I think I've got them all. I mean, that was really it. And lines of communication were extremely short. Everybody had uh, access to the Prime Minister as it was necessary, um, and they didn't have to ask permission to uh, go and do it. And it felt like a family rather than a department. Uh, And, uh, of course, it also felt like a great privilege uh, to be there. Uh, And so I think there was great advantage in that slim... Line uh, method of correspondence. Now, remember talking about thinking time. Harold Macmillan, I didn't quite serve under him, but he described it as the <laughs> lightest job he ever had plenty of time to read Trollope and Jane Austen. Harold Wilson, second time round, described himself as the centre half lying back who was distributing the ball to his talented uh, ministers who were um, uh, on each side of the pitch. And um, really, and and of course, I mean, it was the cabinet office next door that was um, organising the flow of government business, meetings of the cabinet, meetings of cabinet committees, and doing the chairman's briefs. And it seemed as if, as I look back on it, everybody had a functional role. Uh, As I say, it was very slim line, and uh, it wasn't that senior top person was a grade three civil servant and um, it just in my memory seemed to work.
0: Thank you very much, Lord Butler. So bringing us bang up to date from that very interesting uh, account of how it used to work, Peter, you've just very recently left government. Uh, how, how would you reflect on how things have changed?
3: Well, the, I think the basic structure of number 10, at least design I knew it, um, between 2017 and 2019 wasn't fantastically different to the way Robin describes it. It's just the numbers are different. Uh, there's quite a few more people. I think we were probably 250 um, odd and about 20% of those were, were political uh, appointees. And I would say of my of my experience of a number of departments, so probably four or five, including working in the European Commission, I'd say probably my most positive experience of working with the political teams was in number 10. Um, because you were highly integrated, you all knew what you were doing. It's very simple, number 10, really. Uh, I mean, it's quite hard to execute, but what you're doing is very simple. You're serving the prime minister. Uh, And if the prime minister is reasonably clear about what they're trying to do, everybody can pretty quickly... Uh, Fall in as to what they're doing. So actually my experience was that some of the boundaries and the Suspicion and the other issues that I found in other departments between the political team and the civil servants uh, at least in my time in number 10 I just didn't experience at all Um, It was a really uh, effective integrated team and I know that's sort of it's a different balance from uh, from the world Robin describes and I'd be very surprised if if that gets If that gets unraveled so i think one of the one of the challenges for for departments is given the very different um uh, layout in a department where the political team is you know usually much less than one percent how do you avoid a them and us culture and how do you get a sense that we're all on the same side and you know we're all trying to do the same thing and you know if you've got a secretary of state who's communicating the idea that we're part of one team and everyone has different functions that will work if you have a Secretary of State who thinks the machine is a bit useless um, and needs to be kicked in order to deliver, then that will feed through to the relationship between the political team and, uh, and the staff. So um, uh, I think uh, how, you, how that's managed and led is absolutely critical to, to where the relationship works. And as I say, my, my most positive experience was, uh, of that was in, in number 10. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that was also true under, in Simone's time as well.
0: I was going to come to Simon next and put to you a quote that we had from Jonathan Powell uh, when he was talking to us in 2020 when he said, um, what I discovered in number 10 was how little power you have. Was that your experience?
4: Um, y- y-
0: in a way, yes. Um, it, it,
4: it's, it's, the, it's the levers of power. I, I would totally um, endorse what, what Peter has, has said and, and the structure hasn't massively changed, but, it is, it is, it, but the numbers have changed enormously and I don't think that's necessarily made it more effective. Um, My observations would be that the political and the civil service teams were very well integrated in number 10, far better than um, in previous previous departments where I've worked, which is probably again the fact that the numbers are greater of the political um, and civil servants together. But, um, but my observation uh, would be, that in terms of just the levers which you have to handle, um, that, this, that the centre is, is actually quite weak. Um, and part of this, the UK is, is a bit of an outlier now, in that in, in all the other sort of equivalent um, sort of civil services in Australia or New Zealand, or whatever, there's actually a Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet Office, which we don't... Particularly have, and I think that's because Number 10 has grown massively. They're not happy with, for example, the quality of data. I think that Ben Warner is one of the commissioners, and um, I know that we, we grappled with this the whole time that the quality of data uh, management information wasn't that good. So you set up your expert team in Number 10 to get better data, for example, over COVID, whereas in fact it needs to improve over all of government to to inform all of the decisions that are being made. Um, so I. I So I think there's always a danger to set up something really expert in number 10 and then worry less about whether or not that's filtering through to to the rest of it. So just just as observations, I think that the Cabinet Office has become very unwieldy now. Um, It's gone from, I think, 2,000 people when I was there in in the coalition government to 10,000 people now. Um, And um, and I think, there, there, there are quite serious questions that need to be asked. And I don't think it's massively controversial that the, the teams that's in the cabinet office that support the prime minister are very simple, they're very similar to what um, Lord Butler was describing um, in terms of there are sec- there's the cabinet secretary, there are the secretariats, there's the NSA, that um, those could maybe be hived off, the, the honor secretariat to support the direct support for the prime minister. And then to look at the functions, um, the, and I'm talking about the corporate horizontal cross-cutting functions of government, which everyone seems to have thought were not a bad idea because they've kept them. But I don't think they're necessarily functioning as well as they should any longer, um, and/or at least the mandates need to be um, improved. And I think there's possibly an argument now for the separation of the sort of the functions becoming a sort of corporate headquarters of government um, that. To, to, to run the implementation that cabinet committees um, are supported by by these functions um, and and then you have to get into the really knotty territory which nobody wants to talk about of oh, well, they do want to talk about it but nothing's ever resolved uh, which is the levers in number 10 a week because we don't address the uh, the supreme power of the Treasury and it's and I, I, I always felt that the Prime Minister didn't have the equivalent uh, e- support um, in being able to do the bilaterals with the Chancellor because there wasn't that sort of uh, strong advice there um, and I think there is a, possibly an argument now to think about that the, the functions um, include the finance function which is in the Treasury at the moment um, David Sainsbury did a very good review Um, um, in the coalition time. And I think there's something to be said that the the finance function, which means the budget allocation, how the money is spent, how it is allocated, should possibly be sitting now properly with the rest of the functions to get a real-time support to the Prime Minister in implementing the policies. And there will be problems with that, with how do you cut across the cross-departmental relationships, the relationships with the secretaries of state, how do you use the cabinet committees and that structure to support it through a civil service board, etc.? and the really thorny problem of the leadership, because everyone I speak to say there isn't leadership of all of the, you know, sort of, proper, no, there's not one person in charge, and I think that's, of, of especially of these functions and the implementation, um, So I think that's something that needs to be looked at.
0: Very good. Lots of very uh, common IFG themes there. We're also (laughs) big fans of the the functional system. Um, Anthony, you wanted to come in.
1: I just wanted to introduce um, Karen von Hippel and Mark Thompson, who are commissioners who are are there for you to to, to chat to uh, later. Two quick things, Hannah, that um, amongst the many things that the panellists have mentioned that we're also going to be looking at. uh, One is this issue of trust. Uh, why has the centre grown without any uh, monitoring, up to 10,000 in the Cabinet Office, huge numbers in in number 10, people can't even count uh, 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 that that high, the numbers in number 10, without any rational um, evaluation of what's happening, it just grows and there's money to pay for them, Um, uh, it's because there's lack of trust. Ask any prime minister's team uh, why the centre grows, it's because we don't trust Cabinet ministers um, to, to do the jobs properly the erosion of trust is a very very real uh factor and it's one that we need to leak to look at and it goes with leaking i remember uh robin butler telling me 30 years ago there's no point in anyone saying anything in you did say this robin by the way um of uh, <laughs> value in in cabinet because it will be in the first edition of the evening standard Uh, by lunchtime. So, can we address- John Major's government. uh, Can we address, it it, it was, uh, but let's keep it between us because it was dead secret. Uh, (laughs) And and the second thing is the long term, a point that Jeremy Hayward was particularly keen on. Who is thinking? Think of all the long term issues that have not been addressed by these um, incoming governments that that try and reinvent the wheel uh, every time, not looking at institutional knowledge, not looking at what works best, uh, and the long term issues. Social care, energy security, uh, AI, uh, education, health—they um, just accumulate, um, and they're not being looked at. So that's just two other factors uh, that we need to—we'll be looking at.
0: Rob, well, like, can I ask you to respond to a couple of things that um, Baroness Finn said? One about the relationship with with the Treasury. Um, obviously, you worked in the Treasury as well as as, as at the Centre. So I'd be interested in your reflections on the, on the evolution of, of, of how that has worked, um, but also these questions about leadership, the leadership that the Cabinet Secretary has to provide both of the civil service and as the, as the key um, uh, advisor to the Prime Minister.
2: Well, I mean, it, it is a fault line uh, in our government, definitely, between the uh, Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, ironically, the Prime Minister is the first Lord of the Treasury. Margaret Thatcher. Um, always tried to, in uh, dealing with uh, her chancellors, always uh, tried to emphasise that. But it's certainly true that, of course, if there is a difference that emerges, and a difference emerged between Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson, um, then the Prime Minister is outgunned. And so, you know, as in so many things, everything depends on those two being in lockstep. If they get separated then um, the Prime Minister hasn't got the guns to prevail. Um, but that's uh, just one of those things that you know you've got to find somebody you can work with and for the most part. Well it, it often doesn't happen, I mean Tony Blair and Gordon Brown is another example. Um, so you really don't want the Prime Minister and Chancellor being uh, out of step with each other. Now on leadership. Um, I'm not, I can't, I don't, I mean, I'm very uneasy about how things are now. Um, In the number 10 that I worked in, there was no doubt within number 10 where the leadership came from. Leadership came from the principal private secretary, Robert Armstrong, who was a strong um, personality, uh, and um, everybody was happy with that leadership. What role did the cabinet secretary play well within number 10 really not very much and I found you know when I came back as cabinet secretary in 88 I was definitely the other side of the green phase door Uh, and uh, so my um, I felt my responsibility was to make the machinery of government worked and then of course the responsibility as head of the civil service and you know, trying to, and I had next steps and all that. So there was plenty of opportunity for leadership. I gave up some of the roles that the cabinet secretary had had before, like being the Sherpa um, for the G7, really to concentrate on the civil service. Um, and uh, so that was where, I, you know, I tried to direct my efforts of leadership.
0: And when you say you, you feel uneasy about w- w- where we are now, what do you think has changed? Well.
2: <laughs> I'm afraid, I think, that it is unclear whether the leadership of Number 10 is in the hands of the civil servant, the principal private secretary, or in the hands of um, the political appointees, um, and particularly the chief of staff, who actually the one thing, as I understand it, the chief of staff isn't as a chief of staff, um, (laughs) but is obviously very close to the Uh, to the Prime Minister, and um, I would say this, wouldn't I, but I think that, you know, the civil service does know the machine, makes the machine work, and if people who are political appointees have got the ambition of politicians and really haven't got much experience, have too much influence over the Prime Minister, things don't get properly thought out and uh, you you see damage to policy.
0: I think I should let you respond to that one.
4: (laughs) Um, I I think Lord Butler makes makes a a fair point. I mean, the Chief of Staff isn't the Chief of Staff because under Crag, political appointees, special advisors are not allowed to manage or direct civil servants. Um, And and, and, and there is, you know, obviously, there is a fear that there's too much influence in the hands of uh, unelected, uh, non-political individuals, or or not unelected individuals, should we say, who are political. I, I think that um I, I think when I was talking about the leadership I think number ten has become a lot bigger um, as as peter said so it's it's to have one p p s who's giving the policy advice in in a private office capacity to the prime minister plus trying to sort of manage quite a lot of other functions that are in number ten is 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 quite a is quite a tall order um I, I think that um Uh, to to, to go to the chief of staff position it's it's quite an important one my the best position like the best way of squaring the circle would actually be to have um, because we had Steve Barclay um, as chief of staff who was uh, you know a a sort of cabinet minister I would give the chief of staff position cabinet rank I don't know that it necessarily works being drawn from um, the but certainly ministerial rank Um, and because then there's an accountability that they have to have, which is quite important, um, and um, and that possibly drawn from the House of Lords because there was definitely a disquiet about someone being drawn from the House of Commons. So I think that that's one way of ensuring greater accountability. What I was talking about in terms of the uh, leadership, because prime ministers do moan about the lack of implementation, the lack of cross-departmental... Uh, Uh, Support, which is why we end up setting up delivery units, et cetera, in number 10, to see the cross, you know, the the sort of like the drugs ideas or the net zero approach to to find those cross-departmental issues. And so so one of the recommendations from the Smarter Government Commission was was to have implementation plans underneath all the cabinet committees. You know, it's not a bad idea, um, but... What I'm really talking about is the leadership of, who, of who's actually in charge of the implementation of policy, which is ahead of the civil service role or more, more so than the cabinet secretary who's supposed to be providing the sort of <clears throat> policy advice and managing the secretariats, and possibly a more of a number ten prime ministerial person, which is why I f- I, I'd be very interested in Lord but it's few on on, on that separation because I think that the two are rather different roles, the head of the civil service and the cabinet secretary and there's very rarely a separate head of the civil service. Mm
0: I don't know if you want to come in on that. I'll very quickly answer
2: that. Um, It was an issue when um, I was retiring and uh, Tony Blair was thinking of uh, dividing them Uh, and the argument I had was that if you are also head of the civil service and cabinet secretary, you have, that gives you leverage over the Permanent Secretaries, Uh, the Permanent Secretaries care about uh, your um, influence over their careers and um, (laughs) so I found that did give me heft with the other Permanent Secretaries and you can use that to the Prime Minister's advantage in getting things done in departments
3: a couple of points so i, I mean having be, i have more sympathy with the idea that number 10 needs a decent number of people because when things go wrong they end up on the prime minister's desk so one way or the other you will be accountable as the prime minister for the, all the other things that might go wrong in your government and you need some way of covering that The challenge is to balance that with actually focusing on the things that really matter and to be able to do that over the course of several years because that's how long it takes to affect change. So that's the constant tension in the building is how do I cover everything or appear to cover everything while really focusing on the things that are going to make a difference to the country and to my my premiership. Um, In terms of the building, I mean, I think the leadership of the building has got to come from within the building. It can't really come from anywhere else. And I don't think there is a world in which you don't have both a civil service dimension and a political dimension. And the key to an effective building is that those two things work in harmony. And the people at the top of the operation understand each other and work together really well, and the building doesn't see a fag paper between them. Now, it's easier said than done, uh, but that to me, I don't see an alternative to that because I don't see a world in which either of those legs is going to be either subsumed by the other, taken away, or diminished. So, and it, you know, I shouldn't extrapolate from my own experience, but that was my experience. It's absolutely key that I, as the PPS, the DG of Downing Street, and the Chief of Staff, worked hand in glove. Where we had differences, we sorted them out quickly, and the building <laughs> and the building got a solid message about what together we were doing, rather than you know well, he says this and they say that, and you know, this bit of number 10 thinks that and another bit of, and you end up with the competing courts, which is uh, a nightmare for effective um, government.
0: Great, we're going to turn over now to some questions. I'll take some questions in the room. I've also got (laughs) lots of questions coming in online. Um, So uh, we've got a roving mic. Please wait for it to come to you and then uh, tell us who you are, if that's okay. So Alex, please start with the gentleman here.
5: Hannah, my name's is Andrew. I'm very kind of you to ask me to speak. So, just to ask the panel should we really go to the United States method? Let's just appoint everybody to the top 100 jobs as a political appointment. And when the Prime Minister leaves, they go as well.
0: Thank you. We're going to take uh, questions in groups of three, I think. So, there's a gentleman at the back there.
5: Just in uh, 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 Josh Arnold Forster, I used to uh, I was a spad at a spending department and was familiar with the concerns that has been expressed about the Treasury. But I, I had a bit of sympathy with them in that the department uh, I was involved with uh, had a culture of trying to second guess what the Treasury would try and do. But nevertheless, there is still no real way to hold the Treasury to account for some of the... Not just the funding decisions, but decisions about competition and the obsession with competition or the Seedell-Ardell split or all of these other things that the Treasury have consistently argued for over the last 40 years. There was that famous quote, we are all monetarists now. Well, really, are we? <laughs> uh, and, and particularly, do we really support globalisation? Which bit of government is actually looking at how we change that framework?
0: And Alex, we come to this gentleman who's popped through from next door, which I can encourage other people next door to also do.
3: Um, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Aaron Boove. I used to be uh, grade six in the Home Office, and in and out of government, started as a fast stream and an apprentice. One of the things, I guess, I'm recognising we're talking a lot about individuals and appointments, but we're not talking about processes and governance in terms of constitution. Is that something that we're missing in the UK, a written constitution to protect the processes that we have fought up to this point in time have been the safeguards that we need?
0: Okay, who would like to kick off on those questions? Peter?
3: Well, I have a crack at a couple of them. <laughs> um, I mean, on the, on the Treasury, um, look, I mean, pragmatically, I think many governments have gone through this, do we need another super ministry of economy? Or, and I'm sure that will be one of the, one of the things that you, you consider. Um, I just note that consistently, that's not been where we end up. Um, now maybe that's going to change, I don't know, but um, personally that would surprise me. I don't think those, that basic lay down of, of departments and the role of the Treasury is, is likely to fundamentally, fundamentally change. I do think that, um, and as Lord, Lord Butler says, the Treasury will always have the whip hand because it has 2,000 very bright civil servants and uh you know quantity has its own quality as well, and in a in a confrontation or disagreement with number ten they will weigh heavily. I do think that having a uh, a serious capable economics team in number ten is important um, because I think there needs to be some um, capability within the building to provide advice input thought challenge uh, uh, to uh, to the prime minister and that doesn't have to be uh always a conflictual relationship with the Treasury. I think it can be uh, quite a creative one. Um, on the US system of appointments, um, <clears throat> uh, I guess the problem is, um, you know, picking and mixing bits from different systems always needs a bit of thought, because the system as a whole functions in a particular way. And if you take bits out without the checks and balances that are elsewhere, then you just need to think about what, what you're left with. I I do have a lot of I mean, both on my experience on COP and elsewhere, I do have a lot of sympathy with the idea that the government needs, could find ways of getting uh, expertise from outside into government more often, more consistently and at greater scale. I certainly, when I was working on COP, I think probably 10, 15% of my team were from outside government. and for reasons that I won't bore you with, it was enormously valuable. Mm. These are people who not only bring expertise, drive, commitment, they're also networked in a way that when you're within government, you don't quite realize what really deep networking <clears throat> means. So, And there's all sorts of issues with that, and I understand the challenges, but I have quite a lot of sympathy with, with the idea that in a complex, dynamic, disrupted, all the other things world, trying to bring that expertise in, uh, could be made easier and could be more of a standing part of of how we do business but moving to an appointment system for all of the top of government I'm not so sure unless you're gonna do quite a lot of other things differently in government as well
2: well um I, I can see um, pretty well that my only difference with Peter is that I'm a small staff man and he's a large staff man but on this question of um, providing expertise to the prime minister um I recall that um that, um, Margaret Thatcher had Alan Walters which worked very well first time, Ted Heath had Brian Redding, these were sort of as it were one guru, um, Margaret Thatcher had uh, Tony Parsons as the foreign, of, foreign Affairs Advisor and my feeling was this worked as long as that person was a bridge to the department and not an obstacle to, to the uh, department. And, All those, including Alan Walters' first time round, really were bridges. They interpreted the department to the prime minister and the prime minister to the department. And that needs doing, it's a a very valuable role, but it doesn't need to be a big function in my view.
0: Thank you.
4: Um, so, in so, so my view, on the p- political appointments, I'm I, I sort of going to come down on the side very much of retaining the uh, permanent, impartial, uh, politically impartial civil service, um, because I, I think that the, um, the institutional memory is, is important, um, the continuity is important. Asking why did things didn't work the first time, we don't ask it enough, but it's it's, it's quite an important part. That's not to say there shouldn't be sort of way, new ways of looking at things. We need to have the flexibility. We, the accountability lines could be a bit difficult. Um, in a private office, a private sector, the PPS, has a dual line of accountabilities, both to, the, to their minister, but also to their permanent secretary, um, who decides pay and rations, which is always quite an important part of Anyone's calculation. So, um, so, so, so I think, um, so, so I think it's important to work out how you, how you manage um, that that sort of accountability. I think we've we introduced a few things um, during the coalition, such as a, f- a fixed tenure for permanent secretaries, which sharpens accountability. Doesn't always, you know, there have been criticisms of it, but it is in quite an important way of ensuring that the system as it works, works correctly from an accountability level. We need to have better ability to bring in the skills that are lacking. And it goes to this stewardship point of the civil service. Um, You know, who's who's making sure that we do have the project management skills, the digital skills, the management information skills, that that, the commercial skills that are that are sort of increasingly in demand. When we were in the coalition, we introduced something called, and Peter might be able to help me here, the extended ministerial office so that the political teams and it was easier to bring in a mixture of political and civil servant teams so that ministers felt that they had that more direct support. But for some reason, that was scrapped um, when Theresa came in. So I don't quite I've never quite understood why. and um, and and you know and and to go to the point about the the constitution, um, it, I know that the institute has been keen to recommend that there's a possible move to a statutory basis. I would actually oppose that on the grounds that I don't think it's it's a good idea to set the civil service in conflict with the elected prime minister, and I think there's a fault line. But we do need to, and and one of the things that you're. Commission will, will probably be looking at carefully is how, how you balance that proper stewardship long term of the civil service to make sure it's the skills etc kept up to date to serve carry on serving ministers.
0: Thank you um, and I, I would say I mean this is probably a debate we should have separately but I, I don't think we see it as setting up the civil service in opposition to the prime minister and, and the politics it's about clearly defining what
4: but there is a danger if you follow the rule through properly that a Prime Minister who is accountable in Parliament um, might um, possibly be up against a sort of
0: a statute in Parliament. I want to take a couple of questions we've had coming in online. So Ben Yong uh, from Durham University asked a, a very interesting question. Um, are there certain minimum requirements to the centre that should exist regardless of who is Prime Minister? I think he's getting at the sort of the structures at the centre. Are we too are we too flexible? Um, and uh, the other question I wanted to take uh, was, oh, it's disappeared. Um, uh, There's a question about um, the role of the centre in, in uh, this is from Sam Chivers, the role of the centre in uh, d- generating sort of trust and, and capability um, so he, uh, he or she says uh, uh, are the problems at the centre a result of living in and responding to an increasingly complicated world and should, there, should the goal be to clarify the function of, of the centre um, so that people understand what it's there for and I think that this is a really interesting question. Are we all talking about the centre wanting you know and, and having the same concept of what the centre should be for? Who would like to take those two? one of... Why don't you each take one? Don't feel you need to answer them all. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I have, a,
2: I have a more minimal um, concept of the role of the centre. In our constitution, I mean, you know, we're not, we shouldn't be completely bound by history, but all statutory powers are conferred on <laughs> secretaries of state. The Prime Minister has no effective statutory powers at all. Uh, and so, you know, that, I think, produced the concept that the... Prime Minister was the chair of the cabinet, but as it were, the heavy lifting was done by all the departments. Now, as uh, Peter said, and I think it's definitely more the case now. In the end, the buck always stops with the Prime Minister. I not uh, and you've got to, you know, you've got to have an arrangement that deals with that. And I think it is more that is more true now than uh, it was in my day. But as I say. I always felt that the role of the center was not to get in the way of the departments, to keep them up to the mark, but not to try to do their job for them. Peter?.
1: Come on.
4: Um, I, I well I, th- I think Lord Butler is absolutely right it's it's, it's um, it, in fact the delegation of authority um, as I understood it because we, we went through this but we were looking at the extended ministerial offices it, it actually it the the prime minister is the minister for the civil service and as such he confer he delegates authority to the secretaries of state in department now then there's this nice construct that the the secretary of state then delegates the permanent secretary to manage the department um, but in terms of um in terms of letting your secretaries of state get on with it um I, th- I think it's actually terribly important but how do you then coordinate it properly from the center and i think that's that that's actually the key question of how much how much support do you want at the centre, that you're developing policy at the centre and then you're handing out to your Secretary of State's maybe an implementation of that policy and the detailed it, policy implementation. How much are you actually going to be reliant on your Secretary of State's and their departments for that policy advice? And I think, that's, I, I think that's the sort of existential question that needs to be answered.
1: I just uh, wonder before we finish in five minutes, whether any of the commissioners want to say anything themselves, and if so, um, they're mostly in the front row here. They've got that... I
0: wanted to also welcome Matthew Juniper, who's snuck in and not had a name check so
1: far. Um, uh, uh, Welcome. And there was a a lady here who was very keen on a a question uh, too. Uh, And this... uh, do we have time for Yeah, another? we've
0: got, I think, a time for a very quick final round and, and of three gentlemen. questions. So, this
1: gentleman
6: here, and then. Sure we can... Adam Ridley, one time special advisor to the Chancellor, Mrs. Thatcher, prepared a few manifestos like the 79 one. I've got two questions for really, for uh, Anthony and Robin. In mentioning the arrival of incompetent and ignorant ministers in power, I think you didn't make any implicit reference, even to preparation for government. Mm. One of the things one did between seventy-four and seventy-nine was to actually prepare for government, and that involved a great deal of work. And to the extent that the civil service permitted it, which was minimal, a fair amount so, of civil
2: so, service so omitted.
6: The, I say to the extent that the civil service permitted it, a certain amount of constructive discussion in the undergrowth, which Robin may remember. My other question is particularly particularly directed to Robin, which is the longer term. You will be thinking about the longer term, but I'm wondering if he could reflect and you could reflect on what it is that makes us so bad at thinking about (laughs) the longer term. I say it as another member of the Central Policy Review Staff, late lamented.
0: Thank you. Mr. lady.
7: Uh, Margaret Aldred, former civil servant. I really wanted to ask a question which both Robin and Simone touched on in their last answer, which is um, about the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Secretaries of State. Because, um, in my experience, that is one of the fundamental things to getting things done. And number 10 in the Cabinet Office have grown because they bring problems in that they see um, they want to sort, and they're not being sorted. But I think. Um, I differ a little from Simone because I think Secretary of State's do have statutory powers um, which are enshrined in things like the Defence Powers Act. Um, And the way in which the Prime Minister can and can't work with their Cabinet is actually fundamental to the way the centre of government works. And at the core of government, the relationship between the Cabinet Office, the Treasury, and Number 10 is the thing which will determine... Um, whether it has the power to get the levers to work. And that's often by sort of personality and sheer force of will. And I'd be interested in the panel's comments on that.
0: And do we have one other question from next door? Am I getting that sense or is that... No, okay, sorry. There is... <laughs> mustn't neglect our neighbours next door.
5: Um, my name is Sammy. I'm a current civil servant at the Ministry of Justice. Um, I'm wondering um, whether you could briefly reflect on, it strikes me that disagreements over kind of exactly the role of the center and how command and control it should be versus how kind of delegated it should be is kind of a
3: microcosm for broader debates that normally take place at the political level um, about the same question. Um, to what extent should we be, um, uh, should government be government, to what extent should the state be calling the shots? To what extent should we be um, uh, devolving powers to, to other people? Um, so my question is, should we expect that to basically fluctuate as political um, parties fluctuate and as kind of the the, the powers in government um, change, depending on their, on their views? Thanks.
0: Brilliant. So I'm, as we are running up against time, I'm going to ask each of the panellists to pick uh, any of those they wish to answer and any final concluding remarks they'd like to make uh, before we come to an end. So... So, so I,
4: I, I would only say, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right about the relationship between the prime minister and the secretaries of state, and we haven't touched on on that. I think that if we uh, could make the, I, I th- I th- the prime minister should obviously be setting the centralised direction. The prime minister is the one who gives the um, appointment. It's their patronage. It's one of their few great levers of power to a secretary state and i think there needs to be a common discussion about what is to be achieved how that's achieved i think there needs to be the confidence that it's it's capable of being delivered and that it shouldn't be micromanaged from number 10 i i, I always thought margaret thatcher had a rather more decentralized approach of getting good people in place to get on with what they were meant to be doing and that is how it should work but there does need to be that that bond of trust that you that 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 it it works through maybe common policies to cabinet committees and that the implementation is there and that it, it, it can happen that you have the support in your department and that you've got the support and the good relationship with with number 10 to manage that peter
3: um two or three remarks so I mean it's the politics stupid right? I mean to put it bluntly one can one can mess around with the centre a lot but the political context is going to determine what parameters you're operating in so where you are in the Parliament what the size of your majority is what the nature of your majority is how stable your majority is what the world is hitting you with all those are the parameters which determine how the centre functions as much as more than um, where the chairs are um, as you say the Prime Minister has the pulpit and patronage I mean the rest is sort of secondary Those are the the things you have. The tension, I think, that you're identifying and I'm sure you'll look through is is essentially a centre that's designed to service effective cabinet government with all the other pressures which are privileging a more presidential style of government. And, you know, that's not a new tension, that's a familiar one. Um, I don't see a way around that, but that the centre gives the appearance of taking an interest in everything because it as it, as Robin has, has said it lands on your desk plus you need to keep departments sort of honest um, without trying to micromanage except for those two or three things where you've really decided you're going to stick with it and put your shoulder to the wheel over the course of five years um, because those are decisive for the country or for the government or whatever um, i i don't see myself a way of reconciling the tensions between the cabinet system that we've got and the pressures towards a prime ministerial uh, presidential system that we've also got, other than finding that balance which will shift between
2: breadth and focus.
0: Very interesting, Lord Butler.
2: I just uh, like to take Adams two uh, points. We do, of course, have the convention, very valuable, that prime ministers authorize fifteen months before an election. I mean, fifteen months in case the. Um, incumbent calls an election before uh, the last moment where there can be discussions between permanent secretaries and opposition um, leaders. And those are very valuable and I think preparation of that sort between the civil service done on a confidential basis with the opposition is extremely valuable. Uh, Not least to stop them preparing in quite the wrong ways. Uh, You know, I always think that uh, as an example of that was the reform of the health service of Andrew Lansley in 2010, which didn't have nearly enough influence from the Department of Health and was actually contained some very important mistakes. The other thing is (laughs) thinking for the long term, um, it's, you know, I mean, it's the immediate pressures on prime ministers and governments. Uh, The CPRS was asked to introduce a long term Um, aspect to uh, government, and we tried to do that. I always think, and I I think of William Hague's column in the Times yesterday, a good Prime Minister will have um, policy intentions on two levels. One is to deal with the day-to-day, but underlying it, a mission that he doesn't make much of, but uh, is always in the prime minister's uh, mind, and preferably in the minds of the cabinet, which uh, isn't much advertised to the press, but which really drives the government. And uh, I think several of the prime ministers that I worked for did have that underlying mission uh, and when they did, they were more successful.
1: Thank you very much. Anthony. You always know when Robin goes slightly quieter that there's going to be something even more revealing uh, (laughs) uh, coming up uh, there. Look, I think that's really interesting. I just want to just bring a couple of strands together, but just by dipping back into the past, halfway through the Cabinet secretaries, uh, life he created the cabinet office in 1916 the fourth cabinet secretary um Robin Butler's predecessor said we can't cope it's too complex I remember him uh, saying this it is simply you do not understand government is simply too complex all I can do is if I've got three balls I can throw them all up and I'll just with luck catch one now is that really right I mean, he was talking halfway back. Is it really right the government is complex? That's one more complex. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at. And how can we use uh, digital? We've got amazing people like uh, Ben Warner and uh, Aradazi and the whole commissioners there who really understand uh, um, uh, uh, as Juniper, digital. How can we use digital to to make the complex easier to understand Uh, would be one thought which we welcome your ideas on, and also uh, the question of this treasury that keeps coming up. I mean, is a solution to go back, go back halfway through the life of the cabinet secretary, halfway through the life of the prime minister, the prime minister was first one of the treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, Uh, Gladstone uh, revoked what uh, Peel had done, and and Peel was Chancellor himself, decided not to do it and get rid of the Treasury. Uh, How can we sort that out? What can we learn from abroad about um, heads of government uh, and that inevitable conflict that we can be well managed with uh, the chancellor. So look, um, that was great. We are just setting out on a journey. 15 months, Robin reminded us, is the time that uh, now we're gonna be looking ahead that, uh, that the civil service can start talking to different political parties. We are very much in this. The extent to which we succeed in coming up with something that nobody has done for many years, which is to produce sensible proposals, rational proposals, digging into the private sector, digging into the past, digging into foreign governments, what can we learn that all uh, governments will uh, implement for the benefit of everybody and including sorting out the long-term problems. The extent that the Institute will do that will be with your goodwill and your ideas, and we welcome it. And thank you very much online and being here in person. Hannah.
0: Thank you, Anthony. Well, I think that just about sums it up. Uh, Thank you all so much for joining us uh, here today. And as I say, look out for further events uh, as we progress our thinking uh, and take evidence, and uh, hopefully come up with some really interesting conclusions around this time next year. So, thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you,